Welcome to Marketing Thought Leadership, the podcast that offers insightful discussions on thought-provoking marketing topics. Here's the host of our show, marketing consultant, speaker, author, and educator, and the president of L2M Associates, Linda Popke. Hi, this is Linda Popke, and welcome to our latest episode of Marketing Thought Leadership. We're here today with Maria Ross, who is the founder of the brand consultancy Red Slice. She believes that cash flow and creativity and compassion are not mutually exclusive. She advises entrepreneurs and fast-growth businesses on building irresistible brand stories and messaging to better connect with customers. Maria has authored a number of books, including Branding Basics for Small Business and her newest book, The Empathy Edge, which we're going to talk about today. She also understands the power of empathy on the brand and on personal levels. In 2008, shortly after launching her business, Maria suffered a ruptured brain aneurysm that almost killed her and inspired her memoir, Rebooting My Brain. So she's spoken to audiences from the New York Times to blog her to all over the place, and we're thrilled to have her here today. So welcome, Maria. Thanks for having me, Linda. This is great. So you've written a book about empathy, and before I ask you about why, I would like you to define empathy for us, because I think too many people confuse empathy and sympathy, and they're very different. Absolutely, and I actually address this in the book where, you know, everyone I talked to sort of gave their own spin on how they defined empathy, but for the purpose of the book, I narrowed it down to a mindset to adopt the perspective of another person. Um, so if you look at traditional definitions of empathy, a lot of them say, you know, oh, no, it has to be you feeling exactly what somebody is feeling. But in the modern definition, you can be empathetic towards someone simply because you're looking at the world through the lens of their eyes and you're you are understanding where they're coming from, you're seeing their perspective, and that's the kind of empathy we're talking about in the book and how it benefits organizations. So sympathy sort of adds that layer of pity to it in many instances. Right where empathy is more just about, you know, empathizing if someone's angry or empathizing if they're sad or empathizing with their situation, even if you have never necessarily walked in those shoes. Ah, actually, that, and that's a great point, too, because most of us haven't. So why would you write a book about empathy? And certainly I know I mentioned before about your, your brain aneurysm and that incredible recovery you had, and so I think you've probably experienced this. But in the business world, why is empathy so important? Well, I, I, you know, I've been kind of a student of empathy my entire life without even realizing it and um, very impacted by the experiences and the um, perspectives of other people, for, which can be a blessing and a curse in, in many situations. But specifically in 2016, I was really upended by the presidential election and mm. just the behaviors that were going on and the lack of civility and lack of understanding. And also what was concerning me the most was this this um, demonization of the other. And yes. I thought, well, what can I do as a brand strategist? You know, do I need to become a, a civic activist? Do I need to, you know, get involved in more causes? And I was hearing this lament from my customers and my, my clients and my colleagues as well, sort of like, what can we do within the scope of our work? And that really sparked something in me about how can we use our work and our platforms to bring about change which got me down the path of, well, maybe if businesses and organizations can start to master empathy, you know, this is where we spend the bulk of our time. And if we can't master empathy at work, what hope is there for the rest of the world, right, the rest of our lives? So I wanted to focus it sort of on what my wheelhouse is, which is business, branding, um, and customer experience, and just say, okay, 
little Trojan horse factor here if we can get people to adopt a more empathetic mindset at work because it benefits the organization, maybe, just maybe, that will spill over into their personal lives and ultimately transform the world. So kind of a lofty goal, but um, I think we can all agree that making the, the workplace a more empathetic and compassionate place to be would benefit everybody. Absolutely. And, and I think, you know, you hit on something that no matter what your political persuasion you know, whether you're, you're red or blue or purple or whatever, you have to agree that there is this nastiness and a lack of civility and a lack of empathy going on in the political sphere. And we see it in other areas as well. We see it in, and we see it in sports activities and we see it in, in other places too. So we see what happens when empathy isn't involved and when we're, we're you know, not thinking about being in the other person's shoes. What happens when you do have empathy? How does that benefit different businesses? What, what really works for them when empathy is involved? Well, that was actually the, the great part of this whole exploration and the research is that there are so many benefits and hard benefits to an organization and to leaders and brands and teams adopting an empathy mindset. I mean, just some of them broad-based are just increased innovation, increased productivity, better uh, employee engagement, retention, uh, talent attraction, um, better customer loyalty. Oftentimes it can be good free press, you know, which is sort of what people think when they're, they're sort of looking at a company and, and wondering if they're being empathetic for the right reasons. But the bottom line is it, when companies and organizations do act with empathy, people notice. And they do get attention. They do get word of mouth. So there's all these benefits both internal to the organization and external to the brand. And that's something that, you know, in the, there's some studies that suggest it increases stock price, um, increases valuation of a company, that some companies outperform in their markets when they have empathetic cultures. So there's a lot of there there to prove to a skeptic that this isn't just some sort of nice-to-have type of uh, management philosophy, but it's actually something that can increase the bottom line. Do you ever find that people are concerned that, gee, what if I empathize with the wrong thing? Could I go down the wrong path? Is that an issue in a company trying to figure out how we are more empathetic and really where we want to be empathetic? I don't know that I've come across that particular issue. I mean, I think the you know one thing that's important to note is that in my research is that you know sociopaths use empathy to their advantage as well to take advantage. Oh, of interesting. Yeah, empathy can be used for bad as well as good, for evil as well as good. <laughs> so, um, you know, when you understand someone's motivations, you also can manipulate them in a way. But we're talking about this broader um, taking that perspective, taking that lens, and I think just the action of, of getting outside of yourself and looking at something from someone else's point of view brings humility to leadership, to an organization, sort of we don't know all the answers. We need to look at this from someone else's point of view. And that in and of itself, even if they choose not to act on that, and that's the whole thing right. is, is empathy is the mindset. And it, in, in my book, the definition is that it le can lead to compassionate action, but the action is key. So you can have all the empathy in the world for a colleague or for a customer or whatever, but if there's no policy or action that takes place, then it's sort of just empathy that dies on the vine, in, in other words. And so I don't think there's any danger to, to being empathetic to another point of view because that, you know, that implies a judgment that the other point of view mm -hmm. is right or wrong. Um, and I don't think that's where we're coming from. I think where we're coming from is that 
by taking that other perspective, you know, you can collaborate better, you can communicate better, you can negotiate better because you know where someone is coming from. And, and this is fascinating. And you talk about the subtitle of the book is Harnessing the Value of Compassion as an Engine for Success. So is compassion what comes out of empathy? How do those two relate together? And maybe you have some specific examples of how an organization might use that to be more successful. Yeah, and I, you know, this is something, again, where the research differs, uh, depending on where you look for the definition. Some people think compassion leads to empathy. Some people think empathy needs, leads to compassion. <laughs> I found some compelling proof in my research that really when it, when it comes down to compassion, compassion is often an active thing. It's a compassionate act. Yep. Um, and, you, you know, we tend to say you feel compassion, but the way I've framed it out in the book is really about when you have that empathetic mindset, it can lead to compassionate action. Now, can people take compassionate acts without empathy? Absolutely. You know, you can give to a charity. You can help a homeless person on the street. You can, you know, help a local shelter. And it doesn't mean you're necessarily doing it because you're empathizing with somebody. But the empathetic lens tends to lend itself to then leading to a compassionate action. And that's where it can take the form of policies, procedures, leadership styles, the things that people can see. Exactly. That's great. So what does it look like when a company starts to really adopt empathy, makes this kind of a best practices within the organization? Well, the funny thing is some of this is based a little bit on personal experience and what I've seen in action and I also share in the book. But it's that when people and companies are compassionate, when they're expressing that empathy and they're considering another person's point of view, the feedback they get from the world, from that experience, is positive. And then they want to do it again. So even if what's getting them there could be what you might consider selfish motives of, like, we want to get great PR or we want to drive revenue or we want to increase our customers, it, in the end, you still have to do – you still have to adopt the empathy mindset and do the act. So, so you're already doing it, and, and right. it changes you. I spoke to a psychologist in the book who works with autistic children. And a lot of times when they start working with them on therapies, they're given rote lists of things to do. Because eventually doing them over and over and over again changes their feedback from the world, and then they start to rewire their brains, if you will. And so that's, that's what I'm proposing here, is that even if you have, you know, however you need to come to this, wherever you are, um, it's okay to, to to give it a try and then be transformed by that process because I've seen that in in work that I've done in, in companies and clients where they were doing something for the press or for uh, this was going to make the company look good, and they were forever changed by those experiences. So what got them there was a selfish motive, but what keeps them there is the inner transformation. Interesting. Fascinating. So since you're a brand expert, I have to ask you this. We have companies and organizations that we think of as being compassionate and empathetic just by their brand. Um, and then we have individuals that we know are compassionate leaders or empathetic. What comes first? Do you have to have the leader first? Does the leader then create the brand? If you have a compassionate brand, whether you're the American Red Cross or, you know, or even somebody like Salesforce that, that you know, is known for, for doing volunteer work, et cetera, um, is it, um, does that come first and then you attract people who then become empathetic or do you need to have the empathetic people and then they change the brand or do they both happen at the same time? 
Well, in an ideal world, and the way I structured the book is that I talk about leadership, the individual level first, then I talk about culture, then I talk about external brand, because to me it's a concentric circle that ripples out, right? You have to sort of brand from the, from the inside out. And yep. that means, you know, changing the behaviors of leaders that then impact the changes in the culture, the changes in the culture then impact how they interact with customers and clients, which impacts the brand. But, you know, the reality is most organizations are not starting from a standing stop. I mean, they're, they're in existence. They might have different pockets of the culture that are good, different pockets that are bad, leaders that are good, leaders that are, and I guess I shouldn't say bad or good, but, you know, leaders at differing levels of empathy and compassion. Right. And so you sort of have to start where you are. And I think if you're going to start that initiative, it, yes, it, you have to have strong leadership and strong executive sponsorship that, that's modeling the behavior, of course. Like, you cannot have an empathetic organization if the CEO is a total jerk to everybody, right? Because right. <laughs> people are going to be unhappy. That unhappiness is going to spill out into how they impact into their interactions with customers. It's going to, you know, on and on and on. And so it's really what I try to do with the book is say whoever you are reading this book, whether you're an influential CEO with, you know, 10,000 employees and a global company or you're an entry-level manager in an organization, you still have a sphere of influence. And you can create a ripple effect within your sphere of influence, however big it is. So if you decide, yeah, I would like my organization to be that kind of an organization, but I don't think it ever can be, we'll start with what you have impact over, which is your immediate team, your department, your division. You can adopt those behaviors in there. And then, yeah, I think at that point it, it is about leadership coming first because then you're going to dictate the culture, then you're going to dictate the policies, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, I think it's, you know, it doesn't have to be this big transformation play from day one, but um, leaders eventually have to play a part because they can't just be talking the talk and not walking the walk. Got it. And it's, therefore, it's, it's a spectrum. So we're not either empathetic or not, but we're low or we're high, and we can move along the spectrum and, and move people more to where they, we want them to be in terms of empathy. I, I think so, and again, according to research and, and talking to some psychologists, unless you're a sociopath, right. <laughs> you know, most people can, empathy is an innate human trait. Um, biologists have done studies for years that show that, that we are hardwired as humans to be empathetic and live collaboratively in cultures. And what happens is some people in their lives are in environments that nurture that and they're able you know it's just like working out they're flexing that right. muscle every day so by the time they're adults it becomes their identity it becomes their their standard operating procedure other people may not have grown up in that environment they didn't get the opportunity to flex those muscles as often those muscles have atrophied a little bit and so in talking with some experts especially experts that work with children and trying to you know increase empathy in children it's easier, like anything else, right? It's like learning a language. It's easier when, when children are brought up flexing their empathy muscles. But it doesn't mean adults can't learn. It just has to be more of an active decision that I want my identity to be this. And therefore, I have to take very deliberate actions that, again, might seem surface or might seem like, oh, I'm just going through the motions. But going through those motions will actually help to, to flex that empathy muscle over time. So with adults, it's just more of an active choice. And, and that's one of the things, you know, I got with, with talking in the book is some people might say, well, I'm just not naturally empathetic. 
Well, that's a lie because humans are naturally <laughs> empathetic. <laughs> right, just, right. You haven't worked out in a while. And so what are, you know, and that's why I really wanted to include habits and traits that were actionable, uh, the playbook part of the book, which is like try these on for size. They might be painful and uncomfortable at first. You know, you might be sore the next day. I don't know. <laughs> but try these things because as you start to change that behavior and change that feedback from the world, you um, start to rewire your brain. Got it. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So let's talk about it from a marketing perspective because we have a marketing audience here. And certainly we want, as marketers, we want our consumers and partners, et cetera, to be empathetic to our brand and we want to be empathetic to them. But how do we really adopt this concept and embed it into our efforts so it becomes, it becomes natural, it becomes part of our DNA? Well, you know, having, having worked in marketing for a very long time and working on the client side for a long time, I can tell you that most companies don't. They say they adopt a customer point of view, but they really don't. Um, I've worked in marketing teams where we never had an interaction with a customer. <laughs> we never saw customer surveys. We never solicited feedback. You know, it was all in a vacuum of we, what we thought the messages should be and what we thought was compelling. And, hey, we think this is a really great idea. Not that you have to vet and focus group every single marketing campaign that you want to do because, obviously, that would take forever. But some marketing teams are better at embedding the customer into what they do every day. So with my work with clients, for example, I build brand strategies and messaging. And a part of that brand strategy is ideal client or customer personas, which sounds like a ridiculous exercise at first to sort of build this character of who your ideal customer or client is. But it informs so much because once you actually have a clear, detailed, intimate picture of who your customer is, you do start to see the world through their eyes. What keeps them up at night? What do they fear? What do they value? What are they striving for? And you can speak to those things within your messaging and your marketing so that you are speaking directly to their buying drivers rather than this is what I think you should know. Um, and just that step alone from a marketing organization standpoint, it seems so simple, but it's so often overlooked in this rush to, well, this is the product we've got to promote this quarter. And so we need to do a marketing campaign. And these are the messages that product marketing told us that we needed to push <laughs> and there's no thought to, like, the person on the other side consuming it and what their life is like. That's what I always try to do with my clients is think about what this person's life is like, not just at work, but outside of work. Like, what kind of person are they? Are they risk-averse? Are they adventurous? Right. Are they um, loyal? Are they, do they care more about their careers than their, the business? Or do they care more about creating a legacy? What are those things that we could be speaking to in our messaging? Again, you know, it's all got to be true, of course, but, but what are the things we can play up and pull out that are going to be way more compelling to them so that that person looking at that marketing or, or attending that event or uh, listening to that podcast says, yes, oh, my gosh, you get me, right? Like, you, you get out of my head. You, <laughs> you really understand. And so many marketing teams do not do a good job of that, um, and sometimes of their own fault, but sometimes just because they're so overburdened and busy. And it's such a fundamental thing. It seems like you shouldn't have to take the time to do it, but most companies and most marketing groups do need to take the time to do it. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, and certainly in the technology field, we very often suffer from if we build it, they will come, right? Mm -hmm. So we right. will build this wonderful technology product, service, whatever that we think is fantastic, and you will come and buy it. 
or use it right without asking you (laughs) if you want it what you think yeah and also like how are you using it and what you know what benefits are you getting from it oh those are benefits we never even thought to tout thank you for letting us know that you know but what's funny is you know a lot of startups and tech companies specifically you know they do that work at the beginning when they're when they're trying to find out viability of the market and but then they sort of stop somewhere along the way, and they go, okay, right. now we got it from here. We, we totally yeah. understand our customers, and they assume that, you know, you assume the customer doesn't evolve. You assume the market doesn't evolve, um, and you're, you're so busy doing all these other things like making these product improvements and doing competitive intelligence and yada, 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 and it's like, how about revisiting with our customers every quarter, every, you know, twice a year or something where it's, it's some aspect of, how, you know, the, the biggest thing I do with my clients, which is so funny and so basic, is when we're working on just the core value proposition of how the company describes itself, we'll do, I'll, I'll do customer interviews that say, how do you describe what their product does? When you, when you tell your colleague you're using this company's product, what do you say it is? Mm. And you'd be surprised how often it's completely different than what the company is out there saying. And so you can either fight that and say, well, no, we're going to continue to talk about ourselves this way. Or you can go, let's use the words our ideal customers are actually using to describe what we do and, to, and also to describe their pain point. Um, and I'm a huge proponent of, like, recording those sessions and using the actual words, like not getting caught up in the jargon. Like, to me, that's empathy, right? It, we right. talk about empathy and user-centered design, but empathy in marketing is, what words are they using to talk about this? Let's use those words as well. Got it. That makes sense. That makes sense. So we're here today with Maria Ross, and she's written this new book, which is called The Empathy Edge, um, Harnessing the Value of Compassion as an Engine for Success. So, Maria, if people wanted to find out more about you and the book, where would they go? Well, specifically, they can get all the information about the book at www.the empathy edge all one word dot com um, and then my website is red slice red dash slice dot com and there's a section on books that they can click to and find out more um, but the empathy edge dot com is the main book site that they can get tons of information and and read a little bit more about the book fantastic so before we go I just want to ask you because there's so much that's fascinating here and so much that's, that that just you want to jump in and do, but if you wanted to start and do one thing today to be more empathetic, what would you suggest we do? Where do we go? I think one of the biggest things in, in the habits and practices that I talked about specifically for individuals and leaders, because, again, I think that's, that's a great place to start if you, if you can, is to start to ask more questions, start to be more curious. So we all go in being very prescriptive about things, and I think if you, if you dedicate yourself to instead of reacting to what people say, being more curious about why they are taking that stand. Why are they making that decision? Why are they saying what they're saying? Adopt sort of a Columbo <laughs> persona <laughs> to just probe a little bit and try that for a week and see how it changes the level of your interactions and the level of your collaboration. Because I think that uh, you know curiosity is one of the biggest traits of empathetic people. It's one of the most important traits. And when you can force yourself to be curious instead of reactionary in any given moment, always be asking questions. And so try that for a week and see what happens, whether it's of your colleagues or your management or your customers. Um, Instead of going in with the answer you want to give, ask the question about why they feel or think the way that they do. 
That's fantastic. That's a great place to start. So let's all be more curious. And, uh, and, and again, I think what I take from this is it's important not to have all the answers and to act like we have the answers, but let's ask what people want, right, and, and take Absolutely. it from there. Absolutely. Absolutely great. And, 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 you know, it doesn't mean we have to give them everything we want, but it's a really great place to at least say we're, we're listening and we understand your point of view. We understand and you. Yeah, and it can make the decisions you end up making, even if they're decisions that people don't want to hear, uh, more palatable because they know at least they've been heard. They've been heard, exactly. Well, thank you so much. We've been here with Maria Ross. She is the author of The Empathy Edge. And thank you, for Maria, for being here with us today and sharing some of this and letting us know about some of the things we should be curious about. Thank you so much, Linda, for having me. This is Linda Popke. Until next time, thank you for listening to Marketing Thought Leadership. We hope you enjoyed this edition of Marketing Thought Leadership, brought to you by L2M Associates. If you'd like to find out how you can improve the return on your investment in marketing programs, processes, or people, contact us at www.l2massociates.com.